Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show. This week we're going to get back on track with the science of happiness. Uh, if you caught the last episode that I did, I endeavoured to do the same thing with a friend of mine and uh, we ended up just getting caught up on this topic of the science of happiness. Still think it was a worthwhile conversation, so I posted it anyway, because this is my show and I do what I want, damn it. Um, i tell you what did stand out to me though, is how much the things that you've learnt that are internalised for you can be so novel or insightful for somebody else hearing them for this the, for the first time something that strikes me anyway i tend to like be learning things all the time and a new idea becomes an old idea pretty quickly and sometimes i don't want to talk about certain things because i'm like oh yeah but this is old news people have heard about this before and it always shocks me when they haven't which is actually quite often because i read a lot of stuff all the time so i know it's probably not a good idea to start with a digression but that's what we're doing this time around so all to say, there's probably some really cool stuff that you know that people around you could benefit from hearing from, so don't keep it all to yourself. Right? Okay. Here ends that lesson and on to the new one. For week four of The Science of Happiness, this time around we're looking at cooperation and reconciliation. And starting off with uh, the course material from The Science of Happiness course, which again you can take uh, on the edX website, edX.org. Uh, if you just search for The Science of Happiness, you'll find it nice and easy and you'll find links to a lot of the content that I'm referencing today uh, in the description on my Facebook page for this episode, which is facebook.com slash The Andrew Curtis Show. All to say... Emiliana Simon-Thomas starts us off this week. She is the science director at the uh, Greater Good Science Center and talks about cooperation, one of the themes for this week, and this just idea of working together towards a common goal for a mutual benefit. So they take a bit of a look here at how we evolve to cooperate and how it's actually more intrinsic to human beings than competition. And right from the start, that makes me hopeful because I feel like we are set up to compete against one another. Even that idea of keeping up with the Joneses, that idea of your lifestyle having to match somebody else's, it's really cool to see that actually in our makeup, we are rewarded by being cooperative, that it is something that benefits everybody. So Dacher Keltner, one of the other senior lecturers on this particular course and professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, talks about the evolution of cooperation. And his argument being that it makes sense that we've evolved to be cooperative because it's beneficial for groups and for individuals. In fact, a thought that I've had recently along these lines is that really it's an area where wealth doesn't always serve us well because the wealthier we are, the less we have to depend on other people. And although I understand there is some merit to that, when we stop cooperating, when we stop relating to other people, we don't actually function as well. And so I can see how, particularly in the Western world, for all that we have, why in many ways our mental health and well-being are not as good as those in other parts of the world who don't have what we have. So the thing is, even today, neighborhoods that have got more social cohesion and cooperation, something they measure by calling it collective, uh, collective efficacy, um, have better child health and life expectancies. They've got greater high school graduation rates and less social disorder. Um, and in contrast, when you've got non-cooperative or what they call Machiavellian cultures or people, they tend to feel more isolated and then they're more stressed and they're less happy. So when we look at 
our primate relatives, um, we can see they're actually quite cooperative as well. Uh, Another le uh, level to this is in something called the Prisoner's Dilemma game. This is really interesting, I think, from looking at a way to be helpful in a way that also doesn't get you taken advantage of. If you've listened up until now, you might have picked up there's a lot of themes around generosity and kindness and uh, cooperation and things like that already that we've discussed. But I do know that when you're looking to do this, one line of objection can be... What about the people who will take advantage of you? Or how do you make sure that that doesn't happen? And it's interesting too, because on the one hand, there is this great body of research that says that just being helpful and cooperative and trusting is better for you. But how do you do it wisely? Well, that's a long way of introducing this idea. The Prisoner's Dilemma game is where you have two players who choose to, basically it's a, a thought experiment, where you have two prisoners who are in separate cells and they have the option of either defecting and selling out the other person uh, or cooperate and get punished accordingly. So, in other words, if they remain silent, then the two of them will receive a, a lesser punishment, punishment overall. If one of them sells out the other, but that one keeps quiet, then they get away with no penalty at all and the other person goes away for a long, long time. And if they both sell each other out, then they're both stuffed. Right? So... This is the prisoner's dilemma game. This is a way of articulating this idea that we're all experiencing, right? That sometimes if I take advantage of the good intent of somebody else, I can do really well. But then if they've actually tried to screw me over at the same time too, then we're both harmed by it. So what do you do? What's the strategy, right? Well, they actually had a competition to figure this out. And um, they discovered that the best strategy is called tit for tat. Basically, it just means that you start off cooperatively and then you mirror your partner's actions i found this amazing when they talked about it during the course it just says that if you meet anybody you start off from this position of saying okay let's assume they're going to be cooperative and then based on their behavior now you just mirror that the most amazing thing about it is that the strategy is actually very forgiving and very transparent but it also prevents you from becoming a sucker so in other words, if you've cooperated and somebody screwed you over, well, then you go, okay, I'm going to treat you as a non-cooperative person. But then when they decide, okay, no, I'm going to start acting cooperatively, then you go, okay, well, so long as you are operating cooperatively, I'm going to mirror the same. But if they swap, well, then you match their behavior, right? Because you think about how often that behavior can be manipulated by people when they behave in a certain way and they say, well, don't you trust me? Don't you do this? I know I let you down, but come on, I'll never do that again. This says to me, look, I am going to respond to the most recent experience I've had of you. Now, could this still be manipulated? Maybe it could, but it still presents a more robust way, I think, of approaching cooperation with people that says, let's start cooperatively. There's something to be said for how our thinking creates our experience of life. And this is something that I've said many times on this show. And one of those things I think is that if you, in your interactions with people, are always tinged with this sense that they're going to try and screw you over. And they can't be trusted. Something like that. I guarantee you, you'll experience more of that. So this strategy of just saying, let's start cooperatively and then respond to how our partners behave. Like, I says, like it says here, it is forgiving as well because it allows for, if they decide to start cooperating, then you say, okay, cool. Well, now I will cooperate also. So it looks pretty cool to me. Quite like it. On to the next part, but first, glass of water, because man, it is hot today. 
Mm-mm. So Jeremy Adam Smith and Alex Dixon are the leading lights behind this one. And uh, their article is called Birds Do It, Bats Do It. And it's talking about how cooperation is a part of all nature itself. Um, multicellular organisms are simply cells cooperating. I think that's supposed to be profound, but I just find that quite kind of cold and disturbing. Um, they talk about ants and they talk about birds and all this kind of stuff. All these behaviors are evident in the world around us. And again, I find it interesting that human beings often will fight particularly hard to not rely on anybody. Whereas it just seems to be that all of nature cooperates. Do with that thinking what you will. On to the next part where Emiliana Simon Thomas talks now about the neuroscience of cooperation. Um, and saying how, and I think again, this is really interesting to know, that cooperation and the lack of it has a distinct effect on the brain. So cooperation activates our reward processing and pleasure centers. And when it breaks down, we feel displeasure. Now, I want you to think about that from a just a biological point of view, because what I love about the science of happiness overall is that it's moving beyond this idea that the principles that we talk about here are just a nice to have, right? When I look at these things and I say, well, there seems to be a physical health benefit, a benefit to your health and well-being for behaving in this particular way. Well, it's no longer just a nice idea or just a nice to have. It becomes something that we should all aspire to. And I have been accused, you may be shocked to know, uh, of being um, an idealist. And I, I relish that title. And so when I talk about these things, I know there can be a, a bit of cynicism. But equally, cynicism is just a pattern of thinking too. And when I see this, I see that having this belief that we should work towards this more, co more cooperative way of being isn't just a nice idea. It's actually something that will physically benefit you to do so. So moving back into this neuroscience, certain brain areas actually activate when we cooperate or compete with others, suggesting that they deal with our connection and our attunement to other people. So other prefrontal areas in the brain activate only during competition when we might need maybe more brain power or decision making or something like that. So the dark side of this neuroscience is that people who perform what they call altruistic punishment against non-competitors, so, uh, no, non-cooperators, rather, have activation in the same reward processing areas. So what that kind of means is that if you're part of a cooperative group and then somebody acts in a non-cooperative way, if you punish them for doing so, you still get a kick out of it. So that's kind of interesting. I think that's why people like to white knight or be moral crusaders or just have a shot at people who are not acting, you know, like on, on you know, the internet, have you heard of that? Uh, when there's comments on an article or something like that, or a particular person has shown to be acting, like, I don't know, a politician's ripping somebody off. How's that? Is that a stretch of the imagination for you? We love to jump on board and just rail against that person. I wonder if this is what that's, this, this is tapping into. When we are punishing those who are non-cooperating, we, we do feel good about it, but I think we've just got to be aware that that is the, the trap in terms of how our reward circuitry works. Maybe not the trap. The trap could be the wrong word to use, but I think you get where I'm going with this. So beyond this stuff, we start to now look at the cooperative instinct. 
And another game that gives us insight into that kind of nature is something called the public goods game. And people start with a certain amount of money um, and they put it uh, into a common pool. And that common pool gets doubled and the money is redistributed. So when players make decisions in under 10 seconds, whether they do it naturally or they're forced to, they tend to give more money and thus act more cooperatively. Isn't that cool? So your immediate response is to be cooperative. And then there's almost this check that goes, oh, I don't know if I should. The more time we have to think about it, the less cooperative we are. Um, players also contribute more if they're primed to think about how intuition helped them in the past or reasoning failed them. Interesting, hey? It suggests just this idea that we've got a cooperative instinct, but we can reason ourselves into being more self-centered. Again, I wonder, and this taps into another thought I've had lately, taps into this idea of self-care. What's the best way to look after yourself? And I don't think we teach people that. I don't think we talk about that very often. Throughout this coursework as well, we've talked about how good it is to be kind and generous to other people, but we have known people who have been taken advantage of for that. It taps into what I mentioned earlier on, that prisoner's dilemma game, right? So how do we help others? How do we cooperate in a safe and constructive way? Because you can't help everyone all the time, right? Is that fair enough? I think that's I think that's an okay thing to say. If there are people who cause you harm, we don't help these people. It sounds a bit harsh, but I, I hope you get where I'm going with this, that it's completely okay if you're in a an environment, in a relationship or something like that around people who are causing you harm, you are not you know, obliged to be that doormat for these people. How do you help somebody from a place of strength? That's the kind of thing that I think is important to learn. And when we don't know that, it makes us second guess all of our giving, all of our caring for others. It might be things like being able to assess a person's character or like I mentioned earlier, that Prisoner's Dilemmas game says, okay, how did they respond to you last? What was their last interaction with you like? Were they cooperative or were they self-centered? If they were self-centered, then say, well, I'll need to see some cooperation from you first. You might find a different way to say that, but you get where I'm going, right? I might need to see something more cooperative from you first before I'm prepared to do that because my last exchange with you was like this. Sounds wise, doesn't it? Doesn't sound heavy or whatever. I think that's a heavy or whatever. Good. It doesn't sound like it's complex, overly complex, right? I think it gives everyone a clear and transparent state of where they're at. So moving on again to peacemaking and reconciliation. This is fascinating too. Um, Dacca Keltner starts to talk about this particular topic and saying how conflict among people is inevitable. That one phrase, if I can tell you from my other life away from the internet where I work in corporate training and, and people development, this idea that conflict is inevitable is one of the most bitter pills to swallow for so many people. If you are alive alongside other people, conflict will happen. And there is thinking underneath that that says, no, no, but if I... There's thinking that is grounded in perfectionism underneath all that, that says that, no, no, if we understand each other and we communicate perfectly and things like that, then there will be no conflict. And of course, you're right. If we did understand everyone completely and completely perfectly communicated, we would have no conflict. But we don't, and so we do, right? So 
anyone with children, anyone with a spouse, parents, anyone alive next to you will be able to tell you that, right? The thing is, we've actually evolved really sophisticated ways to help kickstart this process. And in other words, we are designed to apologize. There's a facial expression of embarrassment, which we're going to talk about a little bit more further, uh, further on in this discussion, that actually makes people like, forgive, trust, and give more resources to us. And again, it's, it's behavior that we see in the wider animal kingdom as well. And uh, when it's observed, there's more peacemaking uh, and things like even grooming, for example, in the animal kingdom is a sign of, of peacemaking, conflict resolution. Um, in fact, I will skip into that part now because Decker Keltner talks about this idea called born to blush. If you're a person who blushes a lot, then uh, you will be relating to this one very strongly. Our embarrassed facial expression has these components to it that help us move past whatever we've done wrong. And the particular expression we're talking about is that when we are embarrassed, what we tend to do is turn our heads down and to the side. So we look down and away. And they talk about how that also exposes our neck, which is a sign of vulnerability and shows weakness and humility in one gesture, in one simple gesture. So it breaks our eye contact and it serves to cut off whatever that previous interaction might have been and starts a new one. Um, we also smile, but it's it's not a, a happy smile, right? It's um, more like a fear kind of thing, a bare-toothed bear te- bear grin, um, shows inhibition and that kind of stuff. We might even look up furtively a couple of times or touch our faces, um, which is also something that you see in other primates and things like that as well. So all this is something that communicates, I've done something wrong. It communicates respect for others and acknowledges that we've transgressed somehow. But it also helps two parties make peace and become cooperative again, which is what we will want, right? So when we look at this idea of our body language. Well, you know what's really cool, by the way, if you ever look into studies of expressions and things like that, those expressions are hard-coded. And in other words, they have found studies with blind children, deaf children, those who could not perhaps be told how a certain thing should look. I think it's particularly with, with the blind, that they will express the same base expressions for things like embarrassment or anger or fear or something like that. Isn't that amazing? So we've got this hard wiring in this particular case to reconcile with other people. Now, on to, I feel like I've said a few times that there's been some favorite parts, but this this next part, looking at the introduction to apology is really interesting, um, where we want to see how we resolve conflicts other than just looking embarrassed, right? What do we do? Well, we apologize, don't we? The thing is, research has shown that apologies increase psychological health and positive emotion in victims, while decreasing negative emotions. But they also benefit the apologizer. Good to know, right? Who similarly, they get increases in psychological health, positive emotion, and if they're a leader, also in authentic pride. And in other words, a pride that is more positive and um, not just driven by my own sense of ego. An apology will always generate some negative emotion for the apologizer, but that's part of the journey to greater well-being. That little snapshot there 
this idea of how negative emotion fill, uh, forms part of our lives without necessarily being a sign that something's gone horribly wrong is something that I think we all need to learn. One trap that we've fallen into is medicating everything, right? If you are sad for whatever reason, you can get antidepressants like that, right? It's pretty easy to do. And we seem to struggle with, uh, if I was to tell you about a story, a conversation I had very recently, talking with someone who was concerned about a friend of theirs, and they were just not doing well, you know, ex behaving in a suboptimal fashion. I don't know, I can't think of a shorter way to say that. And I asked them about what was going on, and it turned out there'd been some major issues with family and in, in their personal life. And so I just said to them in that moment, well, yeah, they're, they're going to be sad, <laughs> right? They're going to be sad. Like, that's that's okay. They're going to be unhappy for a little while while they work through this. But they will return to balance. They'll process it. That's the wonder of how our minds have been formed, been created. But if you don't know that, the any emergence of negative emotion in our culture is like, avoid it, get rid of it, kill it, don't go there. But that might be cutting us off from reconciling with one another. Just a thought. Now, when we're talking about an effective apology, good old science comes to the rescue and talks about how effective apology has four components. So the first one is that we express remorse or shame or humility in recognizing how the victim suffered. That's part one. Part two, excuse me, is where we acknowledge the specific offense and accept responsibility. So that includes elaborating on who was the offender, who was offended and what the offense was. And I say offense in terms of uh, whatever the transgression was, not just the I was offended kind of response, just in case somebody's reacting against that. The third step is that we show empathy and we offer an explanation for why we did what we did. Um, we might explain that those actions weren't intentional or personal or just it's a way of trying to convince the other person that it won't happen again. But I think it's really that understanding our victim impact. What did our behavior do to another person? And then the fourth part is that we offer compensation or reparation. So this kind of apology um, satisfies a lot of psychological needs that we've got because it expresses dignity. Because again, you apologize because the other person deserves an apology. It's an affirmation of worth, right? It also talks about your shared values. It's a, an opportunity to express feelings, which again is something I think we need to get better at doing. It convinces the victim that they weren't responsible and it won't happen again. And it creates uh, reparative justice by planning some sort of punishment or compensation or something like that. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Aaron Lazar, L-A-Z-A-R-E, wrote about this idea of a authentic apology and identified an area where apologies break down. And that is in an article he wrote called Making Peace Through Apology. Um, and the step where apologies often break down, in fact, maybe I should get you to guess. All right, so number one is expressing remorse and shame. Number two is acknowledging the specific offense and accepting responsibility. Number three is showing empathy and offering an explanation. And number four is offering compensation or reparation. Where do you think it breaks down more often than not? Have you picked one? Three, two, one. Okay. Well, according to Aaron Lazar, the step where apologies often break down is in acknowledging the offense 
because often the offender doesn't get specific enough. If it's done right, it makes it easier for the victim to forgive, and victims might even accept some blame and end up closer to the offender. And in other words, yeah, okay, I can see how maybe what I said might have made you say what you said or something like that, right? But when an apology isn't forthcoming, it still might make sense to forgive, which is different from reconciling, because of the benefits of forgiveness. And that's the next part we're going to get into. But just to elaborate on this a little bit more, this idea of making peace through apology, where acknowledging the offense breaks down. It's like when somebody says, hey, I'm sorry for what I did. Well, what did you do? Oh, I, I, sorry for the things I said. Well, what did you say? Um, it might be more a matter of saying, if I'm going to follow through on actually on that line of thought, if somebody said something hurtful, you say, look, I'm sorry, I embarrassed you. I'm sorry that I, um, I've actually had to do that before, by the way, a very sharp tongue, <laughs> or at least I did. I feel like it softened up a little bit. Benefits of age and wisdom, right? Um, I'm sorry for embarrassing you in front of those people, as opposed to, I'm sorry for what I said. You see what I mean? Like the actual acknowledgement of what's going on there. Um, and then if you, even if you look at, um, some of the apologies we see in the media from people, they say things like, I'm sorry for anyone who was offended. What does that even mean? Like, what did you do? What do you think is the problem here? Um, if we don't acknowledge that, then that apology can really ring quite hollow. Um, in fact, there was a great example from Dan Harmon, I believe it was. Um, a response from him. Uh, he was one of the um, founders. Founders is the wrong word. Um, the TV show Community, if you heard of that or not. Um, he had a former staffer come out and talk about how he had harassed her in the workplace. And he's one of the few people who, if you actually look at his apology, genuinely seems to have acknowledged what it was that he did, as opposed to others who have said, I'm sorry for what I did. Anyway, take a look at that sometime as well. I think it'll be quite impactful for you to see the difference. And you'll, I think, intuitively respond when you see, yeah, that's a genuine apology. That's real. On to the next part. And now... We are going to introduce you to a newcomer to uh, the science of happiness. And this is Jack Kornfeld. Uh, and he does a lot of study into what forgiveness means. And this, I think, is, in and of itself, is a really powerful lesson to learn. Um, those kind of soft skills and emotional intelligence skills that we just don't get taught. Because in his opinion, many common views of forgiveness miss the mark. Because it doesn't mean condoning or forgetting. And I have seen and experienced as well the stress that can come into play when somebody feels like forgiveness means, hey, that's okay. In fact, a friend of mine uh, who, actually, that was Marcus, who was on the show the other week, um, has uh, worked as a school teacher. And one of the things that I always loved about when kids being kids, something happens, somebody hurts somebody, is that he'd always catch them out on this phrase. So somebody would do something and he said, okay, so... What have you done? That's the thing. Okay, so you need to apologize to that person. You know, I'm sorry for kicking you, right? And the other kid, he'd say, okay, and what do you say? And the other kid would go, that's okay. And he said, whoa, 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 hang on. <laughs> you can say, I forgive you, but you don't have to say that's okay. And I want you to think about that for you, because I thought about this for me when I learned about this kind of stuff as well. Just that simple distinction between saying, hey, look, I forgive you, because what we're saying here in regards to forgiveness is that it involves accepting negative emotions like betrayal or anger or grief or fear and things like that. 
it's it's a matter of I remember someone saying it like uh, letting go of all hope of a better past, letting go of it, but it doesn't mean condoning it or forgetting it. Going back to that um, prisoner's dilemma thing as well, right? If somebody's previous interactions with you have been non-cooperative, unhelpful, then say, look, I'm completely prepared to trust you again. The first thing I'll need to see from you, though, is a trustworthy and cooperative act. And then we go for one for one. And I'm sure over time as well, you don't have to keep this kind of running tally. But I think it makes sense when we're at a relationship building point with somebody that we have some kind of a, a system like that to follow. Okay. So the other thing about forgiveness is that it doesn't minimize the offense. And we might even resolve that we're never going to suffer that same way ever again. Might not put ourselves in that situation or however it might be. Forgiveness is something that we do for ourselves. And it might not even involve contact with the offender. I found that quite an interesting concept. It might not involve contact with the offender. It might, but it might not. And it's also very profound and it's challenging and it's slow. It doesn't happen overnight, right? But it is also something that is intrinsic to human nature, which might surprise you to know because I have noticed that we have a culture of, of anger and recrimination at the moment. But uh, Michael E. McCulloch has looked into what he calls the forgiveness instinct and talks about how people say that revenge is a human nature, as a revenge is human nature. Um, because forgiveness is also in human nature. Revenge is found in nearly all cultures um, and it seems to kind of serve to um, to discourage aggression and prevent people being free riders and that kind of stuff. But forgiveness is also nearly universal because it also serves a purpose. It brings people together. It allows groups to stay cohesive and cooperative, which also makes them more likely to survive if you're going purely on a naturalistic kind of level. So here we go. What determines what side of our nature shows its face? Apparently, according to his study, it's mostly our environment. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. If we're in a place with crime and disorder and no rule of law, we're more likely to be vengeful. But if our environment has stable judicial institutions, you've got you know police that you can trust and norms of reconciliation and cooperation, we're more likely to be forgiving. So I find that incredible. When we think about the different cultures that people are in, say, for example, those who are living in poverty, Usually, there are breakdowns of, of community organizations and things like that that would foster cooperation and care. I think it just says that in those kind of environments, people feel like they have to take things upon themselves. And when you're outside of those environments uh, and more into safer places, then it is easier to forgive. Either way, that's the science that's come back, right? If you're in a place with crime and disorder, no rule of law, you're more likely to see more vengeance happen. I think that provides a fascinating insight into human nature. And uh, Michael McCulloch also says that we can transmit forgiveness through cultural vehicles like religion and the arts, media and politics as well. So moving into the science of forgiveness. So forgiveness occurs, according to Dacher Keltner, it occurs when we're able to accept what happened, to reduce our desire for revenge, avoid the offender less, I think that's an interesting one, and feel more compassion for them. It's not reconciliation for the sake of reconciliation or taking away any responsibility for them, okay? In fact, it can be something that we just do for our own well-being as well. 
uh, I've heard and experienced as well points where you don't want to forgive somebody because you feel like they've got away with it. Well, truth be told, if you're holding on to unforgiveness, that doesn't hurt that other person at all, but it does hurt you. And from a health point of view, again, going back to the science of health and well-being, forgiveness is linked to more life satisfaction, more positive emotions, less negative emotions, less physical symptoms of illness, less fight or flight responses, and uh, even within relationship context, couples who forgive are happier as many as nine weeks later. Isn't that cool? Now, Everett L. Worthington Jr. is, first of all, the owner of one of the most fantastic names I think I've ever seen, Everett L. Worthington Jr. Uh, he's written about the new science of forgiveness and just expanding on this idea that forgiveness is good for your health um, because people who forgive have less stress and less hostility. Um, and that kind of behavior, stress and hostility, is a risk factor for heart disease. It's particularly true for older people um, because they're more likely to forgive and experience the benefits like less nervousness, less restlessness and sadness. Now, not forgiving, on the other hand, might disrupt the way that our bodies produce hormones or respond to bacteria and infections. But that's science that's in the works right now. Okay. Forgiveness is good for our relationships, the science proves, and I think we can all probably relate to that one being true. It correlates with our happier and more committed relationship, particularly in marriages and things like that. Um, when people don't forgive, partners become competitive and they start to keep score. doesn't work out well, right? So, how do you get there though, right? This is the, this is the how section, by the way. Um, how do we get to that place of forgiveness um, with all those benefits that we talked about, self-esteem and mood and things like that? Besides having forgiveness training, which I would still recommend, or maybe seeing a counselor as well, we can summon, well, what this uh, research talks about, summoning our hearts, or more accurately, the brain's limbic system, to be more empathetic. So rather than looking at the issue from a perspective of fairness and rationality, we're looking at it from a place of empathy, trying to understand, wonder what the other person might have been going through to respond in that way. And then, of course, also accepting that forgiveness can take time. If you ever felt pressured to respond to a certain thing within a certain timeline, it doesn't help, does it? Getting over like an a relationship breakup or somebody ripping you off or being angry about something at work. If you keep telling yourself, I should be over this by now, I can guarantee you one thing. <laughs> you won't be over it anytime soon. So that acceptance of time, I think, is really important. Now, Frederick Luskin is another uh, leading light in forgiveness research, and he describes it in this context he says that forgiveness is the ability to make peace with the word no we feel resentment when reality doesn't meet our expectations but again we've got a choice to accept the past or not so a healthy decision is to continue our lives without feeling like a victim and it might mean forgiving whoever caused the wrong as well as forgiving ourselves for the way we responded and he puts it like this it's wanting yes and getting no Now, the next part of his research that we look at is the choice to forgive. And Luskin, Fred Luskin is the director of the Stanford Forgiveness Project, which do research and offer classes on forgiveness. Isn't it cool that those exist? I think it is. And they've discovered that it can reduce the following stress, anger, depression, and hurt while increasing optimism, hope, compassion, and vitality. And in other words, unforgiveness is bad for you. Now, part of that process involves rejecting our own unenforceable rules and creating enforceable rules. I thought this was an amazing insight because it looked at the world around us and recognizing that 
A lot of our stresses come from trying to control things that we just can't control. We can influence, okay, and if you want to split hairs on things, then that's fine. But ultimately, I cannot make another person do something. And they are their choice. And if I force somebody to do something, ultimately that choice will not be sustained. So an unenforceable rule are desires that we've got no control over, such as wanting people to be a certain way. I wanted somebody to treat me like this. I didn't want to be spoken to like that. I wanted something external to be a certain way. And again, that's unenforceable. We can't make that happen. Well, an enforceable rule is a desire or a goal that is within our control. And usually that relates to our own personal agency, growth, development, what we choose to do. So part of that process is identifying what are the unenforceable rules? Am I living under the effect of an unenforceable rule? Luskin also talks about the way to become forgiving is to practice it on small things. <laughs> um, there might be a big thing that comes to mind when we've talked about all this for you. And if there is, and you feel like that is something you can start to move towards the process of forgiveness, then do it. But equally, you know what? If you struggle to get over the, somebody cutting you off in traffic or, um, I don't know, being late to an appointment, maybe start with that. <laughs> um, now, Jill Sati also talks about facing fear and facing forgiveness. And um, there's a movie, Facing Fear, that's also a movie about forgiveness, um, which stars uh, a gay man by the name of Matthew Boger, B-O-G-E-R, and a former neo-Nazi skinhead, Tim Zahl. Now, Tim attacked him, Matthew, when he was a teenager. And it's called Facing Fear, this film, because it's scary for both of them, because Boger says that part of forgiveness is letting go of a part of ourselves that we've identified with the part that holds a grudge and feels resentment. And even for Tim, the former neo-Nazi, to be there and to actually have to own and acknowledge what he has done as well. Um, I had an insight a little while ago about this and I'm, I'm still working out what to do with it, but I'm going to share it with you now anyway, is that I feel that as the harmed party, I've, sometimes I've stepped, you know, I've done things that need forgiveness from other people. I've also been the person who has been harmed by others. And I realized that if you have been harmed by someone, if you really want to forgive someone or reconcile, if you genuinely want to reconcile in particular, one thing that I've often heard is that people say, well, I'll do it when they do this. And they're waiting on the person who wronged them to take the first step. Something that I have seen is that generally when it comes to resolution of that sort of stuff, I feel like the wronged party often has to be the one who makes the first step. That might seem unfair, but that has been my observation of human nature because when the person who has committed the offense thinks about getting in touch, there is a lot of shame there. There's a lot of fear there. And it often just gets in the way. It's such as the nature of human nature, such as the way of human nature, right? So if there is something like that, you've been hanging on to and saying, well, when they do this, then I'll do that um, because they wronged you. Well, all I want to say to you, and I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts on this, which you can always send through to me too, uh, the Andrew Curtis show at gmail.com. But the wronged party being the one who takes that first step to reconcile. Think about it. Let me know what comes to mind for you when you uh, play around with that one. So in terms of our happiness practice for this week, um, Robert Enright detailed eight steps to forgiveness you can look him up and see what those are um, but he also talks about beginning by making a list of people who hurt you who are worth forgiving and then you start with the least painful offense 
and work your way up the list. So when you've decided to forgive, you can start to think about the circumstances, um, including the offender's childhood, their past hurts and things like that as well, other pressures they might have been going through. And then you can just pay attention to whether or not you feel kinder towards the offender. Maybe giving them a small gift, something like that. In the end, you can reframe the experience and try to find meaning and purpose in what happened. So when you've done that, you just kind of rinse and repeat, work your way up that list. And that process has been shown to increase forgiveness and decrease anxiety and anger. So on to the third part, the last part of uh, reconciliation and all that good stuff from uh, from this week is the uh, science of trust. And Dacher Keltner steps back in at this point and just says that trust to him is defined as the sense that people will act on our behalf or in our interests. And with that, time for more water. Oh yeah, that's good stuff. And um, research has shown that more trusting cultures tend to be happier. Um, but trust of institutions and individuals is declining, particularly in the US, but I would say it's probably the same here. So how do we make people more trusting, right? Uh, interestingly enough, touch is a gateway to trust. Now, if you think about some earlier stuff we've talked about as well, we are a less touch-based culture now as well, which could explain why there's also a little bit less trust around. But it has an ability, uh, touch does, to soothe and activate the reward circuitry in the brain. So even things like a simple handshake can be seen as a gesture of trust. In fact, something that was really cool was uh, some research that was done into the NBA. And they discovered that NBA teams, the players who touch each other more, win more games. You know, more high fives, uh, slaps on the back, pats on the butt, that kind of stuff. Um, they win more games. Isn't that interesting? Uh, language also helps cultivate trust. So our habits of using indirect or polite language build bonds between people and negotiators have got a few minutes to communicate, come up with better and more cooperative outcomes. Ta-da. There we go. Um, oh yeah, this is another one. So, you know, I told you about the, um, that prisoner's dilemma thing before, um, when they called it the wall street game, people competed more, but when they called it the community game, cooperation increased. Fascinating, huh? So, uh, Michael Kosfeld did some study into, uh, what he called brain trust, um, so it's a game that gives us a window into trust and it's the investor trustee game where the investor gives money to the trustee, it gets tripled and the trustee decides how much to give back. So players tend to give away about half their money and get about similar back. But we can increase trust by having the players play with each other longer and introduce punishments for untrustworthiness and remind them of their obligations to one another. Or you can just give them a hit of oxytocin if you've got that line around. Okay, so uh, interestingly, that actually makes investors give more money, but not expect more in return. John Gottman now, good old John Gottman. Um, I say that like I know who that is. It's one of those names that kind of rings a bell and you go, oh, have I talked about, maybe I've already talked about him today. I don't know. I don't know. It's getting on a bit. It's a warm day. Um, trustworthiness. Uh, he talks about the importance of trust and saying that it's the most desirable quality in a romantic partner. It encompasses qualities like dependability and honesty. Um, and just broadly looks at the idea that in any relationship we need to trust that our partners will be faithful and respect us and work in our best interests and that sort of thing. So on to the next part where uh, Gottman talks about um, trust and betrayal and he identified a betrayal metric to measure the trust of a relationship and uh, he had couples interact and then he uh, independently rated 
that, uh, excuse me, uh, rated their interactions afterwards. So for couples with less trust, the interactions were more likely a zero-sum game. So when she rated it well, he rated it poorly, for example. Um, astonishingly enough, though, higher trust, gentlemen, uh, was correlated not just with relationship stability, but also longevity in husbands. <laughs> not, not husbands and wives, just for husbands. So there you go, guys. Be trustworthy. When trust isn't there... Uh, we see partners using the relationship as a comparison level for alternatives. And they start to think they'd be happier with somebody else, which changes behavior significantly, right? So they use this analogy to say that trust is built like a tower of cards, one sliding door moment at a time. Uh, that Gwyneth Paltrow movie, you know, one option A or option B, which one are you going to take? At many points in a relationship, we've got the choice to connect with our partner or turn away from them, ignoring their emotions, concealing our own or not engaging with them. The most trusting partners are attuned to their partners, aware of their emotions. Oh, I see. They've got an acronym here. I wonder why they capitalize this. So they've got attuned. So attuned is in caps and then a D. So A is aware of emotions. T is turning towards them. The next T is tolerating different views. Uh, the U is trying to understand their partner. The next one is uh, the N is not being defensive. And the E is for empathy. So while it's critical in relationships, this final thought was that trust is also important on a global scale because regions of trust, regions of the world with low trust have lower voting rates, less active parents in schools, less philanthropy, more crime, lower longevity, worse health, worse academic performance, and more inequality. So for all of this, again, what I love about the science behind this stuff is that it shows that these ideas that we've had have really tangible benefits. Just trust some people say, well, trust is a sucker's game or something like that. I hope we've talked about a few things today that have shown you how you can trust with a bit of wisdom as well. But more than that, how these are things we all need to be working towards. And so that is it for this week on the science of happiness. And I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. As always, you can send them through to me at the Andrew Curtis Show at gmail.com. Another week of the science of happiness is coming up soon. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. I'm rocking my pants. Suckers and feet.